You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Hello, Spot On listeners. Today, we have a very interesting topic, and I'm going to tell you how this all came about. I went out and I got my husband some hand cream, and I got him a hand cream for men. And I came home, and my son said to me, why did you buy that? Hand cream is hand cream. And then I looked at him, and I said, you know, you're right. I don't know why I bought this. Hand cream is hand cream. And then I started thinking about this, and lo and behold, in my inbox came a book called Diners, Dudes, and Diets, and it intrigued me. And what it all about is food marketing towards men. And I dug a little deeper, and now we're finding, or I'm finding, that men are now the primary grocery shoppers in about four to ten households, and that food companies are really reaching out and marketing their food products for men. They're adding stronger flavors. They're beefing up the protein in yogurts to attract the male audience. And I find this ever-living fascinating. And I read this book, Diners, Dudes, and Diets, and I said, that's it. I am going to have this lovely woman on the show, on Spot On, and um, talk a little bit about this, about gender eating and marketing to them. But before we do that, let's go to the streets and let's find out what do you think? Do you think that certain protein-rich you know, bars or yogurts are being marketed specifically to men? What are your thoughts? Let's find out. I think they're doing a better job at targeting both men and women with protein bars, but there definitely is a stigma towards men needing more protein, even though we all know now that that's false. When I go to like a grocery store or like gas station, I do notice that um, I would say the protein bars are specifically tar- more likely target men. Usually protein rich bars and yogurts are targeted towards gaining more muscle and more muscle is associated usually with men and not women. I don't really feel like the protein rich bars and yogurts I've seen are specifically targeted to men. For yogurt, on the other hand, I really don't see a difference. I just think anyone can really buy yogurt. I don't really see it as being targeted uh, to like a particular gender audience. I think high-protein foods are being heavily marketed towards men. Um, I think there's a societal standard that men are expected to be fit and muscular, and marketing high-protein foods is just part of that. Today on Spot On, we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Emily Contois. She is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Toulouse, and she holds a PhD in American studies from Brown and, and three master's degrees, what a slacker, one of which is in gastronomy food studies, uh, was at Boston University, and she is the author of Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture, and this is an 
absolutely fascinating read to understand this. And she's, you know, she's published more than 50 articles written for the public, including pieces for NBC News and Jezebel. So with that, I want to uh, welcome Dr. Emily for being on Spot On. So Emily, tell me, why, why did you write this book? So I love that your audience is so much made up of students because I actually started this work when I was an undergrad, writing my honors thesis, trying to make sense of the diet culture and the diet industry that was all around me. Interesting. Yeah. So at the moment I was writing, it was the early mid 2000s. And so while I was focused on women, right, that diet culture has so strongly influenced women's relationships with their bodies, relationships with food, what I was finding is that the popularity of South Beach and the Atkins diet made it that more and more men were going on diets in ways that they hadn't before. And so I was really fascinated by that. And so at first the book was about dieting and then it expanded to really think about how our relationships with food, flavor, health, our bodies um, are so related to these ideas about femininity and masculinity and these ideas beyond the gender binary. And so then I started looking across food media right? Looking at food advertising, food packaging, food television shows, cookbooks, um, to really look at how these ideas about gender um, are so strongly communicated through food. Um, and so in that way, it's a book to really um, understand our own food consumption, but also to understand where those ideas come from, in part so we can resist them, so that we can work towards this more inclusive food future um, and a more peaceful relationship with food in our own individual lives too. Yeah, that's so interesting. Why do you think all of a sudden uh, men got more in tune with like, you know, uh, the food they were eating in the bodies? What, what do you think happened? Yeah, so with these low-carb diets, right, this is before paleo, before keto, right, became so um, very popular. Um, these were diets where you didn't have to just eat salads, right, and focus on low-fat foods. You could still eat tons of bacon. You could eat burgers just without the buns, right? You could eat all of these foods that were conventionally considered masculine. You could still eat a lot of food so that there weren't these perceptions that diets, you know, that you were going to be hungry and that you weren't going to be satisfied. We still work with these conventions that masculine appetites are big and hearty and they deserve to be satisfied, right, with meat and potatoes. And so this made it so that if you gave up the potatoes, right, you could still fulfill all these ideas about how men were supposed to eat. And so those diets, that was a part of it. That is so interesting. So in other words, salads were feminine or, you know, but, but burgers were, were masculine. And so these low-carb diets that I guess attracted them. That's so interesting because, you know, uh, Emily, uh, they, you know, all of a sudden we had like men's magazines. We never had men's magazines, you know, years ago. And, and, and so men started to like be more conscious of their looks, Right. Absolutely. Uh, men's fitness, men's health, like those magazines were so surprisingly popular when they first launched. They, I think it's in the 1990s when those come out and they do very, very well. And they do, they change um, the sort of publishing landscape of material for men. And so in addition to sort of these ideas of, you know, salad and steak, masculine, feminine, um, there's this idea of, you know, consumption, right? Of shopping, of caring about fashion, um, of being a part of consumer 
culture, that that's also sort of been considered a feminine thing. And so men's magazines really do play a big role. And food, the body, health are part of it. But it's also about, you know, fashion and grooming and, you know, how you care about your beard and, you know, do you look after your skin, right? It opens up all those different kinds of conversations of how to be a man. How is it perceived socially to be okay, right? To care about all these other things. You know, in your book, and this is a great book, and we're going to put a copy of this up on the Spot On Facebook page, but you use the word dude, obviously, in the title, as I mentioned before, but um, what what is your definition of a dude? As So the dude is the average or below average guy. He is the slacker, and he is the slacker who is celebrated. So compared to ideals of masculinity, right, which are always aspirational, right, for men to be assertive and breadwinning and competitive and hugely successful um, in their bodies, right? This expectation that you look like the cover of a men's fitness magazine with muscles and really lean, right? Six-pack abs, big biceps, all those sorts of things. The dude instead slacks, right? He resists those expectations um, so that he's able um, to be pleased with himself, right? Without reaching those expectations. And so he comes out of a specific historical context in the United States as well, particularly particularly during the Great Recession, when um, our current recession, right, that we're living through right now has um, definitely affected women and women of color to a much greater degree. Mm -hmm. But when we look to the Great Recession, um, which economists date to sort of 2007 to 2009, and then I talk about the Great Recession era, arguing that the cultural effects of that economic downfall lasted for much longer, that this was a time when men had an even harder time, right? Aspiring to those ideals and conventions of masculinity and of ideal manhood. Um, if you lost your job, right? If you were a young man and you had to move back home, right? And live with your family, you couldn't start your life. Um, that this was a moment of significant gender crisis given the ways we define masculinity. And so the dude was a way to sort of lessen those demands. It was a way to resist those expectations. And what I look at in the book is how the food, media, and marketing industries were able to use the dude, right, as a way to convince men that they could drink diet soda and go on a diet and use a cookbook and, you know, watch food television because the dude was so insincere, right? He's so whatever that even if he does these things, it's with so little investment that it doesn't threaten his sense of masculinity. So, so interesting. That is so interesting. And you talk about it in your book, multiple things And I want to, you know, crafting dude food media, which I absolutely love. And actually, you know, let's leap to that because you were talking about the, the how uh, manufacturers started producing foods for dudes. And, and I just love the way you do that. And like the masculinity of yogurt. So, and, and you're right. So tell us more about that. Yes. So it's not the truth elsewhere, but in the United States, yogurt had been perceived as a feminine food. And it had really only been marketed to women until we have uh, Greek yogurt in the United States, right? That comes here much later than it does in Europe. And because of its increased protein content, right? Protein is perceived as masculine, building up our muscles. And so they were able to attempt, right, to market Greek yogurt to men through those
those ideas about masculinity. And so I look at a couple of brands. One is from Dannon called Oikos Triple Zero in a black package with the NFL seal on every right. They're sort of leaning right. into the perceived masculinity of professional sports and particularly of American football. And then I also looked at um, Powerful Yogurt, which is a smaller brand, um, but they packaged their yogurt in a much larger container. It's eight ounces. It's so much bigger than the 5.3 ounces you'd see for Dannon um, or Yoplait, right? Like it's so much bigger. And every package had six pack abs chiseled into the plastic cup, right? Their tagline was find your inner abs. Um, and they had these sort of horrendously misogynistic, you know, commercials and images in their attempt, right, to convince men that it was masculine and manly to eat yogurt. You know, Emily, I, it would be it would be interesting that if you went across that yogurt line, and I wonder if the yogurt in they call it bro yogurt, you know, for bros, but if the yogurt in the one that's uh, marketed for males is actually the same yogurt as the other ones? I, I don't know that for a fact, but wouldn't that be funny? It would be. I think nutritionally they're quite similar, right? When you look right. at the fat and the calcium and um, the amount of protein. And so that's why I find it so fascin fascinating that the packaging, right, is right. where we symbolize these ideas about masculinity and femininity. Right. Um, when we think about, you know, even like, I looked at even like the material culture, right? When you, you've hold, you know, held a cup of Activia in your hand, that plastic is so lightweight, right? It just collapses in your hand. So even with the plastics they were choosing for the men's yogurt, they are sturdy and substantial. Again, like every element of them is meant to code for and speak to masculinity. That is so, so interesting. But you're right. Now that you say that to me, and you know something, after this, I'm going to the supermarket and I'm going to I'm gonna be like the crazy woman in the supermarket weighing different packages and looking at the males and the, you know, the, the other ones. But you're right. They are, I, they're clearly uh, darker in, in color and the NFL's there, but I didn't even know about the weight. I have to tell you something very interesting because, you know, when I was reading your book, which uh, is fascinating and it's an easy read, so I, I really welcome that all of you get it. And again, we'll put the uh, book up on the Spun On Facebook page. I remember, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm aging myself and I'm embarrassed to do this, but what the heck, I'm among friends here, is that, you know, when, when I was growing up, one of the first diet soda was something called TAB, T-A-B. And I don't even know if you, you can even still get TAB anymore, but TAB was a diet soda and it was pink, you know, so like I, you know, that was the soda that I drank and I was young, you know, maybe teenagers, early 20s, I was drinking Tab. And then years later, they realized that maybe men would like um, a diet soda. So what Tab did, which was owned by Coca-Cola, they made Diet Coke for men. So speak to that. Yes. So to your question, Tab did just retire. Coca-Cola only just oh. finished making it. I think it was late last year. Um, I actually wrote a piece that's tracing exactly this idea. Oh, gosh, please send us the piece, and I'm going to put that on the spot on Facebook page. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, I'd love to send you the link. Um, that, that 
there was definitely a market, right, that they discovered in the 1960s of folks who, I mean, at first diet sodas uh, were sort of medicinal. They were meant for diabetics, folks who couldn't, right, have that sugar in their diets. But it proved so successful with people watching their weight or trying to reduce their calories that the uh, audience for diet sodas is significant from the very beginning. But you're right that Tab's packaging and the way it was marketed um, was very feminized. And so in 1982 is when Coke develops Diet Coke. And it was meant for sort of health-minded um, yuppies, right, of what they were called in that early 1980s, but, you know, men and women who were interested in health and fitness. Um, and so it was meant for both genders. But in the subsequent years, Diet Coke also comes to be feminized, right, and understood mm -hmm. as a feminine drink in 2005 with Coke Zero to come up with a diet soda for men. And mm -hmm. what I find so fascinating is that they actually go back into the lab to develop a better, right, more real and delicious tasting artificial sweetener when they're creating a diet soda for men. And so I argue from a feminist perspective that that's based on this assumption that men demand and deserve, right, these like real tasting foods, while women for decades, right, had been drinking these diet sodas of varyingly acrid flavor when we think about how it doesn't really approximate sugar. And so with Coke Zero, they literally go back, right? They come up with a different combination. It does taste better, sweeter, more like sugar, but they launch it again, right? Just like the yogurts in a black can with sort of different iconography so that it'll connote masculinity. Although when diet, when Coke Zero first launches in the United States, it was in a white can that looked a lot more like the Diet Coke can and they have sales problems. But in Australia, um, they, did the black can as a tie-in um, to a very famous and well-loved rugby team, the All Blacks from New Zealand, and their numbers go off the charts. So they go back, they launch it in the United States in a black can, and it has quarter after quarter of sales growth and success at a moment when sodas, right, even diet sodas are having significant sales problems, you know, in the United States as consumer tastes change for healthier options um, and to get away from both sugar and artificial sweeteners. This is absolutely so so fascinating, and I'm going to tell you something. Uh, you you said you they retired tab. Well, thank you because it really was not a good tasting beverage, Emily. It was not at all, and Diet Coke was so superior. But that's so interesting. They said, ah, women will drink it anyway. Uh, we're not going to worry about it. But but all of a sudden, when they marketed men, they felt like they had to bring up the quality. That is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, speaking of beverages, what what I'm seeing now is uh, uh, these hard uh, seltzers. And I'm seeing, so now that now that you got this put in my head, Emily, I'm, I'm looking at like marketing now. So tell me about hard seltzers and how are they being marketed? Yeah, so I write about hard seltzers in the conclusion because I think they're such an interesting case study. Um, and so even though they are alcoholic, um, I think even wine, right, is starting to worry about the popularity of hard seltzer. It's really changing that category. And so a number of them, when they launched, they had kind of feminine designs, right? Like really beautiful sort of arrangements or fruit or sort of pink colored cans. But I was really fascinated by White Claw, which purposefully launched themselves with a post-gender advertising campaign. 
That's how they spoke about it. That they wanted to extend that idea of the casual hang to everybody. And in addition to it being a product that, you know, consumers enjoyed, like that pitch helped and worked. Um, it was popular with everybody, you know, from soccer moms to frat boys, like huge expanses, right, of different understandings and performances of gender that White Claw didn't just do well in the marketplace. It became this cultural phenomenon. So I see great promise in thinking about how we can market products in a way that isn't to women, right, and for men, um, and that build on these oftentimes very conventional, stereotypical, regressive ideas about what gender is. Um, that there's really interesting work in that case study of White Claw. I'm really interested to see where that continues to go. Okay, we're going to keep our eye on that. And maybe a year from now, we're going to have you back and you're going to be telling us where, where that went. But you heard it first here on Spot On. I, I, you know, talking about food and marketing of food and l- look who's making food now. So let's talk about men's cookbooks. And of course, uh, yeah, you, you told me this in the book, you know, uh, creating a dude food, uh, chef at uh, a food network. So tell us more about this. Yes. So I collected a corpus of cookbooks that were intended for men um, from about 2000 to 2020. And they are such a fascinating set of texts, Joan. They are so frustrating, just like everything else I looked at in that from the cover design, from the emphasis on meat, um, from the way the table of contents are organized, right? It's not the straightforward, you know, sort of appetizers, dinners, you know, it's not by food group. Like they're so strange in every way that they were trying to convince men that it was okay to use a cookbook and to be able to cook. Even cookbooks where the recipes were written by professional chefs, you still see them talking about things, you know, like cavemen invented fire. We've been cooking since the beginning of time. Like, don't worry, get in there. Um, You see them talking about, you know, the equipment and the utensils you'd use in the kitchen as tools, right? Like literally extending the metaphor of, you know, working class masculinity of the toolbox. Um, You know, it's laughable. Well, I, I just have to interrupt you. Because I just want to, I'm so sorry to mean to direct, but I just got to tell our listeners this because this was so funny in the book. And you talk about uh, kitchen tools. And here is a picture. Uh, it was a cookbook or a magazine or something in the book. And here is this man with a tool belt. And in it is like tools for the kitchen, which I thought was hysterical how they set that up. You know, like this, you know, like tool man in kitchen, get fire, get food. It was it was a great great picture. In fact, you know something. We're going to take a, a snapshot of that and put that up on the on the spot on Facebook page. But you're right. It, it, the way they went about yes, it, it was really and I think very it, interesting. Um, doesn't give men enough credit, right? I don't think men are anywhere as near as dumb as marketers think they are. Um, but the but we I mean what the book shows is the tropes that they use over and over and over again, particularly when this you know fear of gender contamination is there when they're trying to market things that are. Pers- perceived as feminine. And so then they kind of go overboard, right? Trying to make things seem really masculine. And so we see that in the cookbooks in a variety of ways. And then when we think about food television, I, you know, wrote a whole chapter on Guy Fieri. I could have written an entire book on him. He's such a fascinating figure um, that I was... So tell our listeners who he is, just in case someone doesn't know. Yes. So uh, Food Network had a show called Next Food Network Star that came out in 2005. And so Guy Fieri, I think he pronounces his name Fieri, um, was on that second season in 2006, where people are competing for their opportunity to have a show on Food Network. And he is 
the only, if one of very few winners, um, who became a huge success. So his first show is, you know, Guy Off the Hook. Um, and so he's this very unconventional man and food media celebrity um, with spiked blonde hair and he wears shorts. You know, his fashion choices are very, very unusual for a food media celebrity. And, and he's rugged looking. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's, he's built. He's, he's like, uh, you know, he reminds me of a linebacker type. You know, he isn't like this um, French chef. Uh, the, you know, in the kitchen, correct? No, exactly. He's not wafy at all, right? Like he right. definitely eats the food and enjoys <laughs> it. In fact, he hunts and he kills it and gathers it too <laughs> because that's kind of a man he is. And he has this, you know, totally different set of culinary manners, right? That he's <laughs> boisterous. He's so enthusiastic, right? He calls himself the mayor of Flavortown. Um, and he's just taking everyone there. Um, and so his second show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, has been hugely successful, right? It's had dozens and dozens of seasons. Um, and it's well-beloved by fans and also hugely ridiculed by other folks. So I was so interested to look at his polarizing potential, why he's so deep loved and has um, a very big fan base and why he is so strongly critiqued. And part of it is this dude element, right? That he's resisting these expectations of real manhood, um, of who a chef should be, um, and how a food media celebrity should act. That he's purposefully pushing out of bounds in every possible way. Um, and so he is such a fascinating figure to think about, you know, dude food that you eat, that you cook, um, and his sort of presentation of self as this rocker dude chef, um, who at the time, he was very different um, from what was on Food Network and, you know, the idea of a chef as it circulated in culture. Right. This is absolutely fabulous. I mean, this is such a fabulous, fabulous read. I mean, uh, uh, you know, again, you know, when I started to read about this book, I said, wow, where have I been? And, you know, this has been around me the whole time and I haven't spotted it. And when you when you wrote this book, you know, Diners, Dude, and Diets, um, you know, how gender and, and uh, power collide in food, media, and the culture. I, I mean, it was just screaming out at me. It is such an interesting, interesting read. And again, we're going to put up uh, many of the resources that Emily um, has written about up on the Spot On f Facebook page. And this is just absolutely fascinating. And we're going to have you back, and I'm going to figure out how these hard celsus. I'm, I'm going to see, you know, where they went and what's coming up next. So with that, Dr. Emily Contois, I want to thank you for being on Spot On. Thank you so very much for having me. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salji Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?